Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. I'm here today with Tim. Say hey, Tim. Hey, Dirty Birdies. Great to be back with y'all. Yeah, Tim. Uh, Tim and I were nice and perky now, but we were struggling a little this morning. Yep, sure were. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe a little bit of a hangover, but uh, we went and we jumped in the ocean, and uh, yeah, that seemed to, to perk us right up. We're feeling better now. Hair of the dog doesn't hurt either. That's true. <laughs> yep, we're having a gonna have a nice beach day today after yep. recording. So excited about that. But uh, yeah, we're recording in the garage in Virginia Beach. So uh, you know, apologize if there's any background noise or anything. But um, yeah, we got a good uh, good episode planned today on the extinct moa species of New Zealand. I'm excited. I yeah. loved the uh, loved the last episode about imperial woodpeckers, and it's a real pleasure listening to that. So I'm excited for another, uh, you know, discussing an extinct species. Yeah, and having Jay Pogo on that last one helped too. That was great. <laughs> awesome job, Jay Pogo. Yep. So Tim, you had to follow that act. So uh... <laughs> I don't know that's a tough one to follow. <laughs> uh, before we start, though, Tim, uh, how's uh, things been going with your feeder in Charlotte, North Carolina? Everything's been great. It's, you know, I really enjoyed the feeder episode that we did and I feel, you know, more well informed about how to maintain it well and, you know, more knowledgeable about what I'm putting in my feeders and there's still plenty of activity, you know, have plenty of the uh, common backyard birds, Carolina wrens, uh, things of that sort. And um, so, yeah, it's nice to nice to be able to look out the window during the workday and, uh, and see plenty of visitors at the feeders. Awesome. Yeah. It's good to see him. Anything, any new activity, any new birds? I know you said that chipmunk is, you've been watching him kind of. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's been the only, uh, the only nuisance that's been trying to, you know, come and, and take all the seed, but that's about it. Uh, I did have a red bellied woodpecker come and pick at some suet recently. Uh, so that cool. was cool to see. And the occasional, downy as well and then uh, i think i i think i told you about the brown thrashers that nest nearby so they had uh they had some young ones that were they were feeding i saw the two adults you know coming and grabbing food from the feeders and then feeding the young ones so that was that was cool to see also that's really cool yeah Yeah, i love brown thrashers they're such like an intelligent bird yeah that yellow eye looking at you Mm -hmm. you know is always really cool to see cool species Awesome, dude. Well, I'm glad to hear the uh, the Charlotte feeder is going well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, um, oh, I have one shout out to do today. 
I forgot to give this shout out in past episodes, but to Leticia, um, I hope I'm saying that right because I know she's French. But um, the story with her was when I was hiking the Ho River Trail with my wife in Olympic National Forest, um, we passed her and her partner or, or somebody on the trail and um she had the big telescopic lens so of course i started uh, talking to her like you taking wildlife photos and she shows me a picture of like a rat snake she had taken a picture of and i told her about um just up the trail uh my wife and i had stopped at a um stream where there was like a little waterfall it was like just like a little creek you know but kind of a cool like 20 30 foot waterfall um so we stopped there and we were watching the um, water and everything. And I noticed this bird kept flying up and down the creek. And I was like, that looks like a dipper. And uh-huh. I noticed every time it went up the creek, it had a bug. And then it would come back down the creek without bugs. Oh, and wow. I'm like, they might have a nest. So I ended up exploring more and everything. And come to find out there behind the waterfall the american dippers had a nest oh wow and you could see the parents keep coming up with bugs and you couldn't really see the nest they had it so well hidden behind the waterfall that's really cool yeah it was awesome and so i told her about it and so she was really excited and she ended up getting some uh really cool um photos and i told her about uh my podcast and so later she kind of like tagged me in some of the photos and she got some awesome photos of that uh, nice. that dipper so yeah um thank you leticia i hope that you listen and i hope that i pronounced your name right <laughs> <laughs> um and just one final thing before we begin please 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 people if you're listening leave a review on apple podcasts um if you listen some other way help promote the podcast tell a friend Send me some listener mail. I still have some stickers left um, that you can get for free. Um, uh, just use them for a good cause. And, uh, you know, I'm not asking to promote this out of my own hubris or anything. I want to get the whole mission of this podcast is to get more people into birds. So absolutely. Yeah. Help me achieve that mission, please. All right. Well, let's get let's get to it. Let's talk today about some very cool but unfortunately extinct birds that were native to New Zealand. Um, Before I go into detail and explain about them, let me just set the stage for you guys. It's around the year 1000 in the South Pacific. In a double-hold canoe, packed tightly with people and food, Kupe surveys the horizon. He's the leader of a group of Polynesian explorers, sailing across the ocean to find a new land. Although he knows his navigators can expertly read the tides, winds, and stars, he is nervous. When they departed their home island of Hawaii, possibly modern-day Cook Island, Hawaii, or Tahiti, he felt confident in his ability. But now, as he surveys his vessel, the Matahudura, it seems small in this vast ocean. His wife and daughters, along with other extended family and friends, are all with him. He can tell they are weary from the long journey and anxious to reach land the knot in his stomach tightens. Perhaps this ship is cursed, and they will aimlessly drift in the ocean until they starve or a storm tosses them into the depths below. But just as these thoughts cause his heart to sink further in his chest, a cry from his wife jerks him back to attention. Hey, Al, she cries, a cloud. The long white cloud slowly emerges on the horizon, a sure sign of land. The salt-encrusted passengers rejoice and begin working their sails and paddles with new energy. 
As the travelers continue to approach, huge forested mountains with snow-capped peaks rise up to meet them. A few hours later, the party lands in a natural harbor formed by an estuary between two large mountains, known today as Hokainga. As soon as the boats are secured and unloaded, an overjoyed coupe begins to explore this new land. He marvels at the lush, green forests. The plants are all strange and new, with small, rat-like feathered creatures scurrying in the undergrowth. Suddenly, a loud, strange sound stops him in his tracks. He grips his spear, tipped with a large shark tooth, tighter. That sounded like something... big. The call sounds again, this time much closer and from behind Kupe. He spins around, spear raised to attack, and what he sees takes his breath away. Looming above him is a massive creature covered in long, shaggy hair. While the body of the creature, perched atop two graceful and thin legs, comes up to Kupe's head, he has to strain to gaze upwards in order to make eye contact. The creature looks down at Kupe quizzically from its full ten-foot height its small eyes peering over a large, down-curved bill. Its bill opens and another menacing call forms in the throat of the creature. Coupe, coming out of his stupor, remembers his spear again and tightens his grip in anticipation of an attack. The creature begins to lower its head, its broad bill opening wider, coming closer to Coupe. And then the creature placidly plucks a leaf off a shrub and begins to munch on it, ignoring the strange two-legged creature that just arrived on her island. That was awesome. Welcome to Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really uh, upped the uh, production value there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was a dramatized story of the possible first human sighting of the subject of today's episode, the extinct moa of New Zealand. Kupe is a semi-legendary figure among the Maori. Uh, they're like the, the native people to New Zealand, um, arriving between the years like 1000 and 1300. There's a lot of different stories on how he discovered New Zealand, um, which the Maori call Altira. The Maori sounds I used in that clip were from a fruity sound archive, um, and also, uh, there was a Maori dawn welcoming ceremony that I used for kind of the sounds of uh, Kupe's family in there. I also just want to thank the Les McPherson Natural History Unit Sound Archive for letting me use some of those sounds, um, kind of those forest sounds in the last part of it. That's actually a digital reconstruction of what a giant moa possibly sounded like. Um, it was recorded and made by David Clark and is on the Les McPherson Natural History Unit. Um, and he also like spliced in some uh, native zoo New Zealand birds in there too. Um, Les McPherson actually said uh, that he uh, wanted to listen to this episode once I posted it awesome. with the sound. So Les, if you're out there, you're probably the first New Zealand listener. So hi, Kiwi. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I really wanted to kind of make that to just kind of set the stage on just how incredible these birds were and how, I mean, amazing it must have been. It must have, like, this is the closest humans have come to interacting with dinosaurs is with these birds, I feel like. Because, I mean, they were up to 11 feet tall, like these huge creatures, um, just skirting around the island and like, you know, Coupe and the other Maori were the first people to just arrive on the islands and see these guys. 
that's exactly the impression I got, you know, trying to put yourself there, listening to the, to the narration is that they arrived at the island and, you know, stumbled upon some dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> it really did seem like it. <laughs> Luckily, these ones were uh, pretty placid, you know, just yeah, herbivores and right. stuff. But, uh, um, yeah, soon... Um, uh, they became uh, kind of hunted a lot, the uh, the moas, which which we'll see. So uh, everything wasn't all peaceful between them. Yeah. So yeah, what the first Maori encountered when they arrived on New Zealand was a land like no other. New Zealand had been in geographical isolation for nearly 80 years since it split off from Australia and Antarctica, that like Gondwana split. And importantly, um, when Zealandia separated from the other continents, no mammals were able to hitch a ride on that drifting landmass. However, birds were able to cross the increasingly widening sea, separating the landmasses, and they gained a foothold on the island. So birds evolving just on the island independently of mammals, I mean, that really has happened nowhere else. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, created a very unique environment. And one group of birds on here, the ratites, um, would form the moa. So ratites are a really interesting group of birds. Um, their evolutionary history is like really counterintuitive. Like for example, Tim, the ratite group contains our moa, but it also contains the ostrich, the emu, the cassowary, and also the kiwi too. Oh, okay. Hmm. All these are like flightless ground birds. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them are pretty big um, and they're distributed over like a wide variety of continents. So just intuitively, what does that make you think about the common ancestor for these birds? Definitely dinosaur roots. I'm trying to think of what specific dinosaur. <laughs> well, like, the, uh... so like this is a, these are all like flightless birds right. and they're all like pretty big. Yeah. So like, and they're all like related. So like, what do you think that like common ancestor that formed them all was like based on those characteristics? If you were a scientist, just like, I don't know, doing deduction, I don't know. Yeah. Just reasoning. Large, flightless, yeah, you, fast. Yeah. Maybe. It seems like they... It just seems intuitive to think that there was like one big flightless burr that was running around yeah. and like the continent split and like so that it became, you know, the ostrich in one place yeah. and like the uh, moa in another place. Mm -hmm. But actually it's really weird because like although when you see a bunch of different large flightless birds separated by oceans, like you think it must have been their common ancestor, you know, mm -hmm. um, like the moa is on New Zealand, the cassowary is in Indonesia and Papua New Guinea, emus are in Australia, ostriches in Africa, like they didn't swim across the oceans to get to these areas. So you right. just think like they probably had an ancestor, you know, that was very dinosaur like mm -hmm. and then. And became them. Um, but actually, when you look at the closest relative to the moa, it's a bird called the tinamouse. And it's a grouse-like bird of South America that can fly. Hmm. So what the hell is going on? Yeah, here? I would not have expected that. <laughs> yeah. Basically, the conclusion that researchers have reached is that the ancestor of the ratites was a fairly common flying bird that colonized a wide area of the world. Fossils from early ratites have been found in places like Europe and North America, although there's no ratites there today. Hmm. So they had this ancestor that was like just all over the place, like a small flying bird and, uh, you know, eventually died out in some areas, but then in other areas turned into different species. 
Um, and basically what happened is if they were in an area that they colonized that lacked any kind of large herbivore species mm-hmm. like New Zealand, then they filled in that niche. So like they're on New Zealand. There's no hungry foxes or wolves to hunt them. And so then these flying birds kind of lost their ability to fly because they didn't need it anymore. And then they also experienced island giganticism and developed a massive size to graze on grasslands and shrubs and trees. Um, you know, basically taking the part that like elephants or rhinoceros or deer would have in yeah. other places. Hmm. The really cool thing is this happened over and over again. Um, like in Africa, this happened with ostriches. In Australia, this happened with emus. In Indonesia, with cassowaries. So like this was just a... This all happened independently, but just this was just a common evolutionary role for these these little flying ratites to just if they were in the right environment they would like just bulk up and, and lose their ability to fly wow. and, and become huge. That makes total sense. I guess I never really thought about the fact that flightless birds are flightless because at some point in their evolution there was not a need for them to fly any longer. Yeah, I mean it's like. Takes a lot of energy to fly around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just ask Icarus. You know? <laughs> um, but in New Zealand, the most dramatic example of this occurred. An entire order comprising of nine known species of large-bodied birds formed on an island and filled in the ecological niches normally filled by mammals like deer or buffalo, like I said. The Moa ancestor first appears in the fossil record about 20 million years ago. However, the Moa order as a whole split off from its closest relatives the small flying tinamous, around 60 million years ago. For the first 40 million years or so of moa evolution, there likely wasn't a huge amount of moa species. And even if they were, there was like this big oligocene drowning event 30 to 21 million years ago, where sea levels rose so high on New Zealand that they wiped out many of the species. So like there probably was just like one or two moa species walking around New Zealand for tens of millions of years even if there were some different ones they probably (laughs) drowned when sea levels rose so as we go into like 20 million years ago there's really only one moa species and then it'll later go off to make the um, other nine known species that Mm. uh that we know of so basically what happened is around 8.5 million years ago the north and south island of new zealand separated and also the southern alps mountains range formed This created new environments and opportunities for populations of moas to become isolated and drove evolution into new species. Hmm. So like before, New Zealand was like a little flat. It was all connected. So just one moa species was walking around. But then the separation of the islands, the fact that mountains rose up, that really drove like evolution and, and birds finding their different niches. Yeah. The first moa to evolve, and I'll go into like detail about all nine, but the first one to evolve was the upland moa. It has the most basal lineage of the moas, so it's like the first one um, that happened. It's thought that um, once those southern Alps mountains formed, the upland moa specialized in that new habitat and formed its own species that stayed the same up there, while other moas continued to evolve in the lowlands. Rising and falling sea levels would intermittently isolate and then reconnect islands on New Zealand, making the evolutionary history a bit complicated, but still fascinating. And I'll kind of touch upon each species individually, how they evolved. So, I mean, that's pretty cool that for like 70 million years, there were just these 
awesome birds just forming on this island. Yeah. And like really it wasn't until like seven, eight hundred years ago that humans first contacted and saw them. Right. That is awesome. Yeah. It's like, uh, it reminds me of like King Kong with that, like yeah. <laughs> the Lost Island or the right. Island of the Giants, what Skull Island, whatever yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah. Like that they go to and like there's like dinosaurs yeah. and King Kong and all these crazy animals <laughs> yeah. and stuff. <laughs> so the Moas were just there for tens of millions of years, munching on a diverse range of plant matter from twigs to leaves to fruit to fungi. If you look at the plants of New Zealand today, you can still see the impact of the moa. Many of them have evolved like vicious spines or hairs to discourage browsing, or they have toxins that limit how much you can eat without getting sick. Um, or apparently a common strategy of the plants was just to have such low nutrient content that they're not even worth eating. Hmm. Um, the plants also evolved to rely on moas, though, for seed dispersal. It's thought that the ecosystem of New Zealand today suffers without having herbivores to distribute the seeds. And this has prompted some people to even advocate the introduction of deer on the islands. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but I mean, this is super controversial. And like pretty much what I read is like most people are like, this is not a good idea. Yeah, yeah. But something they are working on is um, extracting MOA DNA and talking about possibly resurrecting and introducing MOA to the island. (laughs) Yeah, Jurassic Park style. Yeah, that would be cool. (laughs) MOA DNA. (laughs) (laughs) So as far as like the scientific research of these guys, um, early European visitors to New Zealand first learned of the MOA from the Maori. They told legends of giant birds and showed them caves where fossils could still be found. The first, like... Recorded scientific study began in the 1830s when giant bird bones were shown to Englishmen by the Maori and then were brought back to London. So there were nine different moa species uh, that we know of. Um, Studies of fossilized gizzards and corpolite. Corpolite is a new good word for your next Scrabble game. Um, It's fossilized dung. Mm. Corpolite. Um, They've been used. Yeah. They've been used to study MOA diets, and um, it shows us that each MOA had variations in their diets that made them unique, and they each specialized in a certain food source. One thing they had in common, though, is that they were strictly herbivores. Uh, I kind of mentioned earlier when Coupe was encountering his MOA, like, he wasn't in any danger. It right. really was the MOA that was in yeah. danger. Um, they're... There's rarely even any insects in their gizzards or dung. So uh, it's thought that the bugs that have been found that that they ingested, it was just accidental when Mm. they were eating some grass, a grasshopper just happened to be on it or something, you know? Hmm. Um, And this is kind of really crazy in the bird world because, like, in my research, like, birds are super opportunistic. And, like, even, like, a sweet little, like titmouse you know it'll eat meat if it gets the opportunity yeah, yeah. and like blue jays you know like yeah they're mostly eating seeds and stuff but they'll they'll eat nestlings they'll eat snakes lizards you know like yeah. most birds are like they don't shy away from meat mm-hmm. so the fact that these moas were only herbivores is like is is kind of pretty distinctive it is yeah especially because you know it sounds like with their size they definitely had the ability to find other sources of food i know like you think you're 11 feet tall like why don't you pick off a lizard every once in a while or something (laughs) yeah so i'll talk about um each individual species and and, you know what they kind of like to eat 
But one thing that uh, every MOA seemed to love, it pops up in their corporalite um, <laughs> over and over again, is a plant called Coprosma. It's an evergreen shrub that grows on several Pacific islands. And in some dung samples, um, Coprosma made up 75% of the plants represented. And there's evidence that after the MOA went extinct, Coprosma populations just exploded across the island. Hmm. So they were kind of like keeping it in check. And then as soon as they were gone, you know, the plant was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Some more general info on the moas. Uh, all moas have sternums without keels. The keel is a part of the bird anatomy that is important for attachment of the pectoral muscles and flight. Like if you look down at your chest, you know, you have your sternum right between your, your pecs. And um, basically they had like a bone that jutted out like the keel of a ship, you know. Um, and so that just allowed, uh, that allows attachment of the big pectoral muscles that birds use to flap their wings. I mean, you're a moa, you're not flying, so you don't need that keel. And in fact, moas didn't even have vestigial wings at all. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy because like you look at an ostrich, like they still have wings and they'll kind of flap them and display with them yeah, and stuff. Yeah, so definitely. these guys had no wings at all. Wow. They just run around just... Two legs and a neck. That's it. <laughs> um, another weird thing about their bodies is their feet. Um, they had three forward-facing toes and just a little nub toe that pointed backwards. Uh, sometimes it was a little more than a spur. This differs from ostriches who only have two toes and also from like other ratites, I think, that just have like three and they don't have that spur or anything. Uh, when you look at moa skulls, you'll notice that their eyes are relatively small for their body. Uh, this indicates that sight really wasn't the, you know, the sense that they were using very much. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't really need big eyes if you're just eating plants. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, but they did have robust um, olfactory regions. So they maybe smelled out the plants that they wanted to eat. Mm. And they also were unique in the bird world because they exhibited sexual dimorphism, meaning that females were larger than the males. In fact, the females look so much different from the males that early researchers thought that males and females were entirely different species. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, it's thought that one reason why females may have evolved to be larger than males is because they outnumbered them. Uh, I saw one estimate uh, that suggested a four-to-one ratio wow. of females to males. So, I don't know. It might, might, might have been nice to be a male moa <laughs> on the <laughs> island. I guess so. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean... <laughs> It's every male bird's fantasy. The females actually probably competed over the males. Yeah. And uh, exhibited territorial behaviors. So, like, you know, you see a cardinal out there. It's chirping away, raising its crest, fighting off other males. Like, instead, on New Zealand, it was the female moas doing that. They were the ones having to, like, you know claim territory and fight for their male yeah. against other females that wanted to come steal them. <laughs> <laughs> And when you look at moa eggshell thickness, um, many species, but uh, apparently the giant moa actually had relatively thin eggshells. And this makes it very likely that the smaller, lighter males were the ones who incubated the eggs while the females were off doing their own thing. Hmm. Yeah, so it's like a total reversal. Yeah, yeah. The females, they're the ones fighting, and they're the ones that are doing the territory. And the male's just at home, sitting on the eggs. Yep. Like, hey, honey. <laughs> How was your day? <laughs> I killed three females. <laughs> I fought, defended our territory. Yeah. <laughs> well, what did you do? 
I broke an egg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, another crazy thing is like most modern birds, like they mature really quickly. Like you think of like a robin, it lays the eggs. Two weeks later, they're hatched. Two mm-hmm. weeks later, you know, it's pretty much an adult. Um, but moas took years to become fully mature. Wow. And this is thought, you know, if you're an island species, you can't just like have exponential population growth. You kind of have to have a slow growth, you mm-hmm. know. So um, there's evidence that the broad-billed moa took as long as nine years to fully mature. And because they take so long to reach maturity, it's likely that they also live for a long time, too, compared to other birds. Yeah, sounds like it. I saw that um, another large bird, the ostrich, um, only takes about four to five years to mature, and it lives around 40 years. So you can imagine, you know, an 11-foot-tall moa taking probably 9, 10, 11 years to fully mature, and then it probably lived like 50, 60, 70 years. Yeah. Yeah, so... A crazy long lifespan. Yeah, I know. Yes, these were old birds running around. Um, It was... uh, matriarchy yeah. um and yeah coupe when he first encountered that um moa it maybe even like doubled his age you know yeah wow and, yeah and probably doubled his height too yeah that's true so tim any general thoughts just sounds like a really cool species to see i wish they were still around that we could uh you know observe them but it's awesome that you're still able to gather information on it and and we're able to learn about it yeah, and maybe uh, maybe that Jurassic Park style thing will come back and they'll be able to resurrect them. Yeah. <laughs> release them on the island. That'll be something. Except they accidentally like insert like a lion gene yeah. in it. So <laughs> they come out with teeth and just start terrorizing the whole island. <laughs> um, yeah, they, they probably would win too because um, their relative, the emu in Australia, there was like famously this like emu war. Oh, yeah. Where like uh, the Australian government was like trying to like kill all the emus. And uh, if you look on Wikipedia, the emu emu war, the loser is the Australian government. Really? So <laughs> the emus won. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe we should be careful about this yeah. MOA, MOA thing. Maybe that's where they got their reputation too of being a. Uh... You know, being a meaner bird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and to learn to defend themselves against the, the government. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's go ahead and go through all nine MOA species. All right. And let's start with the two biggest and baddest ones. Um, these both belong to the genus Dinornis. Uh, the first one we'll start with is a North Island giant MOA. Its uh, species uh, name is Dinornis Nova Zealandia. Um, it lived in the lowlands of the North Island, and not much is really known about it. There's kind of a scarcity of fossil remains, but it was the second largest moa species. Our largest moa species was the South Island giant moa, Dinornis robustus. Ugh. Robust. <laughs> <laughs> and it ate mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> Likely, it was really important for distributing mushroom spores throughout the island, and it was the biggest, baddest moa of them all. The adult females were six foot six at the back and at the heads. They could reach up to 11 feet, 10 inches off the ground. That's a big bird. That's a big bird. <laughs> There's some evidence that males and females had entirely different feeding strategies. Uh, the large females would prefer to feed in the forest, um, browsing on beech tree branches that, you know, they could reach up because mm-hmm. they're so freaking tall. 
um, while the males spent more time in the grass and shrublands. Yeah. So big ass birds. Yeah. <laughs> um, our third moa species is the bush moa, Anomalopteryx didiformis. It's the smallest known moa species, so we're going from biggest to smallest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was only slightly larger than a turkey. It inhabited both the North and the South Island, and it was a forest specialist. It had a very hard and sharp-edged beak, suggesting that it specialized on tough plant material like twigs. Basically, it just used its beak like a pair of scissors to just cut through the tough plant matter. Hmm. Our fourth one is the Eastern Moa, Emuus crassus. It stood five to six feet tall and exhibited reverse sexual dimorphism, just like, you know, the other ones we talked about. Mm -hmm. So the females were larger than the males. Right. It had very large, wide feet. This makes it likely that it walked very slowly. It was covered in beige, hair-like feathers um, and had a bald head. And I forgot to mention that all the moa are kind of covered in these feathers that aren't really feathers. They, they look more like hair. And most of them are like pretty drab, just like shades of gray or tan or beige, you know, like mm. or brown, you know. Um, not not very colorful birds, but yeah, I mean, they kind of just look like literal giant shaggy carpets walking around, hmm. you know. The eastern moa, though, it lived only on the South Island, um, although there's evidence that its distribution was likely larger historically. It was a rainforest specialist and would experience boom and bust cycles in population during glaciation periods. Basically, when the climate got drier, forests would be replaced by grasslands. Then, you know, the cycle would change, and then the climate would get wet again, rainforests would reappear, and then their populations would boom again. It also seems like the only moa species that didn't like eating ferns. Hmm. Our fifth one, the broad-billed moa, also known as the coastal moa or the stout-legged moa. And its scientific name is Uriapteryx curtis. When you look at recreations of these moa, they are basically like the dwarves of the moa world. They are shorter than the giant moa, but they're extremely thick. Hmm. They have like these massive, almost tree trunk-like legs. They were the most widespread of all the moa. They lived in the lowlands of the north, the south island, also on Stewart Island. And while they varied in size across their range, research indicates that there's a lot of active gene flow between um, island populations. And this is thought to be because since it lived in the coastal lowlands, like when sea levels would drop, they quickly utilized land bridges between the islands. And so they were able to like constantly keep their genes flowing. They fed on leaves and fruit. They had a relatively weak skull architecture compared to other moas. And this suggests that they preferred soft foods and didn't do a lot of tugging or pulling on branches. As their name, the broad-billed moa, implies, their bill was very round, and it suggests that they just walked along and plucked off fruit with some soft leaves. They didn't do a lot of tugging or pulling on the branches. One other interesting fact is that this moa, the broad-billed moa, and the eastern moa that we uh, just talked about previously, um, both of them had long, three-foot-long windpipes that kind of doubled back on themselves similar to the way windpipes are in modern-day swans or cranes. And this indicates that they probably could produce very loud calls. Hmm. I actually have a simulation of what their calls might have sounded like. You want to hear it, Tim? Yeah, that'd be awesome. (laughs) 
Wow. Yeah, so that was cool. That was like bullfrog. Sounds like a bullfrog dinosaur hybrid to me. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been like semi terrifying. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um, That recording was also from Les McPherson Archive, um, and it was created by Tay Papa. So, yeah, thanks for letting us use that. Um, Our sixth MOA, the heavy footed MOA, Pachyornis elephantopus. Uh, This moa lived in the lowlands of the South Island. It was six feet tall and weighed as much as 320 pounds. Wow. It liked open grasslands and shrublands, not the rainforest. The fossil record shows that the populations of heavy-footed moas increased during glaciation periods because the forest would be replaced by grasslands. So, like, basically the eastern moa and the heavy-footed moa were kind of like opposites, you know? The eastern moa, it liked those forests. The heavy-footed moa, it liked the grasslands. Mm -hmm. So, like... In, during glaciation periods, you know, one of them would boom while the other one would bust. Mm. And the heavy-footed moa, if, like, the broad-billed moa is the dwarf, the heavy-footed moa is like the woolly mammoth of the moa world. It was covered in these shaggy, long, hair-like feathers, uh, much longer than the other moa species. Um, this both helped it kind of stay warmer and colder temperatures, and also it increased its bulk so it could just plow through dense vegetation. It ate a varied diet of leaves, mosses, and even large twigs and pieces of wood. And um, just looking at the anatomy, it probably grazed similar to the way the geese do. So just if geese were 320 pounds. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That would be awful, dude. That would be terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, because geese are so fucking mean. Yeah, Yeah, like uh, I saw a video the other day, and it was one Canada goose, and there was like a whole herd of cows, and the cows keep like coming up to it and like you know showing their horns and stuff and the goose is just like nah yeah. like just honking at them and the cows eventually just get scared and run away <laughs> like <laughs> well it's just one goose yeah. <laughs> all right moa number seven three more to go this one is mantel's moa pachyornis garanoides uh it lived in the lowlands of the north island and it was only slightly larger than the bush moa so it kind of competed with it for being the smallest moa that there was <laughs> number 8 the crested moa pachyornis australis their skulls have pits in them so true to their name it suggests that they had a long crest feather or it suggested that they had long crest feathers they lived on the south island and were closely related to the heavy-footed moa but were smaller. They only weighed up to 160 pounds instead of that 320 pounds. (laughs) They inhabited the high-altitude subalpine forests. And skull morphology suggests that they had a shake-and-pull feeding strategy. Shake it up, baby, now. (laughs) Pull and feed. (laughs) Um, They were likely the last moa species to go extinct on the island, Uh, they were likely never hunted by humans because they were just too hard to get to. Um, you don't really see crested moa bones and like the middens of the Maori, uh, people middens, M I D D E N S. It probably sounds like I'm saying mittens. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, those are just like bone piles, you know, that you find, um, and so they don't think the crested moa was really hunted because, I mean, it was up in the freaking mountains. Like, who wants to go up there and then carry down a 160-pound bird, you yeah. know? <laughs> um, but they did die off eventually due to introduced mammals like rats and dogs. 
So, I mean, they were just hanging out there all lonely on the mountains yeah. while <laughs> their cousins were getting killed off. Just shaking and pulling. Just shaking and pulling. <laughs> <laughs> all right, our last MOA, the Upland MOA, Megalopteryx didiformis. It lived on the South Island and ate moss and ferns. It also seemed to like to eat aquatic vegetation and alpine ponds. It also ate mushrooms. Mm. Uh, as its name implies, upland moa, it was adapted to cold, mountainous environments. It's actually the only moa species that's totally covered in feathers to keep it warm. All the other moa usually like their heads or their legs, you know, they didn't have any of those feather hairs on them, but the upland moa did. Also, reconstructions of its feathers show that it had white-tipped feathers, giving it a little bit more color than the other species that were mostly just brown, like I said. Its bones have been found in areas that would have been totally snow-covered in the winter, so this suggests that it likely migrated down to lower altitudes and forests during the winter, but then spent its summers up in the mountains on steep, rocky terrain. It had sharp claws, and these likely helped it cling to even the uh, steepest cliff sides. It's also the only moa species to lay colored eggs. Its eggs were a light blue color. All the other moa pretty much had, you know, boring white eggs. Right. Skull morphology suggests it used a pullback strategy to feed. All right. So that's our nine moa. And uh, they're pretty cool. Which one do you think is your favorite? I might have to go with the shake and pull. Just sounds like a good feeding method. <laughs> yeah, the crested moa. The crested, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take a cop out and go for the South Island Moa just because yeah. it was so huge. Yeah. Like, you yeah, know, that is can you imagine awesome. like nearly 12 feet? Yeah. That's, looking down on you. It's hard to imagine that just because, you know, <laughs> that is a humongous bird. <laughs> Never yeah. seen anything like it. So, yeah, unfortunately, all nine of these amazing birds are extinct. Um, they went extinct within about 200 years of Maori colonization of the island. With them, a unique set of parasites also went extinct. Species of nematodes, trematodes, and ascaris worms um, also went, you know, with the moa because they kind of specialized in them. Some parasites, though, were able to survive because they also parasitized other ground birds, such as the kiwi. Um, apparently, there was also a species of lice um, that specialized in the moa, and they also went extinct. Hmm. So these giant creatures are almost like a, you know, habitat in themselves. Yeah. So when they go extinct, there's like little hangers on that also went with them. But how did they go extinct? I kind of alluded to it a lot earlier, but uh, it pretty much comes down to human hunting. I want to make sure I don't really blame the Maori people too much here. Um, I mean, they only did what like every other group of humans would do. Um, they took a huge risk sailing to this island. And then, you know, when they got there, they reaped the rewards. Uh, while the first humans to set foot on the island likely came with Kupe around the year 1000, he actually didn't stick around. He returned back to his home island to spread the word, and you know later generations of Maori um, later came and settled. Um, there's kind of some debate about what the populations of Moa were on the island um, pre-human contact. Initial studies of bone deposits estimated there were around 159,000 Moa, but I read another paper that estimated populations of moas were in the millions wow. and also suggested that they were experiencing a period of decline before human settlement. 
Um, but then a more recent study I read in 2014 kind of was refuting that one. Um, like, it's funny when you read scientific papers and they say something mean, but they say it in like the most like scientifically snarky way possible. <laughs> so that study where it said that MOAs were in decline and were in the millions, they said that um, it uh, made questionable assumptions, <laughs> which basically means like your paper's shit. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, this more recent study, um, they shifted that number back down to just a few hundred thousand MOA at the time of major Maori settlement around 1280. Oh, that's a typhoon. <laughs> There's a typhoon out there. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, it's summertime here in Virginia Beach, so there's just kind of some scattered storms rolling through. And it's like, a, you know, that summertime rain where it'll just pour for like, 10 minutes and then like oh sun's back out yeah <laughs> but we're gonna keep recording through the uh through the rain i hope you folks don't mind maybe we'll even get some thunder oh, yeah that would be nice um so that paper also argued against a declining moa population um they actually suggested that the population was increasing at the time that the maori came and so they were primarily hunted for mittens Correct. Mittens, yes. <laughs> For the Maori to make mittens. <laughs> Had to no. keep their hands warm on those, those cold island days. <laughs> no, I mean, um, they were hunted for their meat, of course. Right. Um, but also the Maori um, would use bone for a lot of things. And actually bird bone is a really good um, tool making thing because yeah. it's, it's light. Their bones are really strong. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, check on my bird bods episode. I kind of talk about what bird bone architecture is like. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, and so it's very light and strong. So it really makes perfect, um, spear points or fishing hooks, um, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And plenty of bone in a bird that's 11 feet tall. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> um, but anyway, regardless of what the exact population numbers were for the MOA, um, they definitely encountered a lot of environmental stresses even before the humans began hunting them. When you look at New Zealand's geological history, it's sometimes remarkable that anything survived there at all. For example, there were times when the seas rose dramatically and covered all but the mountaintops. Um, there were also two major volcanic explosions at Lake Tapo on the North Island. Um, one was around uh, 3,300 years ago and another was uh, 1,850 years ago. The most recent one was so severe that it actually destroyed all forest within a 50-mile radius of the explosion. Wow. Yeah, I know. So, like, any MOA that were, like, anywhere near that were just <laughs> gone. <laughs> it's also possible that disease caused populations to crash on the island. Isolated island populations of animals are especially prone to huge die-offs if a disease they haven't encountered before um, you know comes onto the island it's possible that migratory or wayward birds from australia um, carried stuff like avian influenza tuberculosis or salmonella and that could easily cause massive die-offs these cycles of boom and bust may have been a normal part of the moa population cycle and we talked about two of the species that kind of experienced boom and bust the yeah. broad build and the stout legged i right, think right yeah like you know one of them like forest, one of them like grasslands. So depending on which one of those was more dominant on New Zealand, you mm -hmm. know, one would reap the benefits. So in the 200 years following Coupe's arrival and subsequent departure from the island, 
there wasn't much of a human presence on New Zealand. So, like, you know, that Moa in the beginning of our story, like, she saw Coupe and was like, hmm, you know, munching on some grass. <laughs> but, like, you know, they might have killed a couple Moa and eaten them, but, like, you know, that was it. Then they left. Um, it wasn't until 1280 that, like, major colonization events happened. And in the 1300s, this drastically um, escalated. Um, the Maori and possibly other groups of people began to colonize New Zealand around that time. Um, while they're hunting, uh, killed off the moa. Also, they burned a lot of the forests um, to kind of clear land for, you know, houses or just kind of develop the habitat that they wanted. Um, and this certainly put strain on the moa. But one of the real big things was they brought with them mammalian predators, such as the Pacific rat and the Polynesian dog. Mm. The moa along the coast were the first to be hunted. The Maori used spears and traps to kill the birds. It's also likely uh, that the birds were pretty tame. I mean, they had never encountered a terrestrial predator before. So the Moa on the coast um, were the first to have their forests cleared. They also were the first to come into contact with introduced mammals like rats and dogs. Um, the dogs would have likely killed smaller Moa and the rats would have eaten their eggs um, and also gone after their nestlings because I mean, these guys didn't have wings. They nested on the ground. Yeah. Uh, and remember also I mentioned earlier how thin their eggshells were for mm -hmm. these birds. So, yeah. like, I mean, they were really easy for rats to just get through that eggshell. Mm -hmm. For about 170 years, Moa still remained on the island alongside the Maori. But in the years 1450 to 1550... This is generally agreed upon the time period that the moa finally went extinct. Uh -huh. Like, there were probably those, you know, moa still up in the mountains and, mm -hmm. like, hanging on. But nope. Then, yeah. the, then the rats came up there, too. Yeah. Interestingly, while moa were abundant on the island, like, those early couple hundred years. Um, like, you've heard of the Maori people, right? Of New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Most people, like... If they don't know much, they know like the Maori like war dance or like, you know, they know, they know all the tattoos and like the the Maori are kind of known as very fierce, um, uh, warlike, um, you know, brave people and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but really, in these first couple hundred years, there's very little evidence that any war occurred. Hmm. You, you don't find archaeological evidence of weapons or anything like that. And that's because kind of it was like a utopia period. Yeah. I mean, uh you know, there was still a lot of room on the island. There were these giant birds walking around. Like, you kill one of them, and it would, like, feed you for weeks. Mm -hmm. Like, um, so there was no reason for people to fight. So, yeah, it wasn't until, you know, a lot of the big food sources were gone and the island became more crowded that then that warlike culture developed. So, I don't know, it's kind of interesting that because of these MOA, you know, there was hundreds of years of just, like, peaceful utopia on yeah. New Zealand. yeah. Well, um, that's really all I have. Um, while I'm going to end the episode here, it's not the end of talking about Moa. Because while these birds got gigantic, um, they were not on the top of the food chain. Oh. And another spectacular, now extinct species used to bring down these 11-foot-tall Moa like they were just chickens. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, we'll tune into the next episode to hear about that. There you go. Tim, any closing thoughts on Moa? It was awesome to learn about him. Really, really appreciated uh, all the information and looking forward to learning what the predators were. Yes. That'll be awesome. We will talk about the predators. 
Um, also, people, again, write reviews. <laughs> um, also, visit um, loosomelusome.com to buy Dirty Bird Podcast t-shirts. Um, that's L-O-S-E-S-O-M-E hyphen and L-O-S-E-S-O-M-E.com. Um, and Dirty Bird Podcast t-shirts are there. All proceeds go to help him pay medical bills for Benji. Um, he had a terrible snowboarding accident. So, you know, support the podcast, support Benji, send us emails, follow us on Instagram. Uh, shout out to New Zealand Birds Online and Les McPherson uh, for letting us use those sounds. Anything else, Tim? Great stuff. All right. And, of course, right when we finish recording, sounds like the rain calmed yeah. down. <laughs> Maybe we can go enjoy the beach. Yeah. All right. Stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, and our rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks, everyone, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Our logo is made by TJ Renoski, with inspiration from my beautiful fiance, Lauren. Love you, babe, even though you don't listen to the show. Our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, and our outro is by the Sidewalk Slammers. Find them wherever you get your music. Send listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at dirtybirdpodcast. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Reddit, you name it, Dirty Bird's been there. Jungle, I might get into a little rumble.